Well, good morning, church. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and uh, turn with me to Galatians chapter four. If you need a Bible, there should be one in a chair in front of you. You can find the passage on 762, but you're gonna wanna be in your Bibles. This morning, we're gonna be looking at them very uh, carefully. Uh, While you're on the way there, I wanna let you know that next Sunday, we're going to gather together and we're gonna partake in uh, the Lord's table together as we do so. And as you're coming, we're, we're also gonna be collecting items for our food pantry, Kayla's Cupboard. So come ready uh, to partake in communion together and then bring along some non-perishable items with you as you do. I thought you would like to know, it would be a great encouragement today that uh, our ministry at Kayla's Cupboard is uh, experiencing a lot, a lot of fruit. In just the last couple of weeks, there have been several people uh, through that ministry who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, so let's celebrate that this morning. But I don't want to just celebrate. I want you to also know that your involvement uh, in that ministry is bearing a lot of fruit, fruit that uh, is going to make a lasting impact both in our community now, but also eternally. Uh, and so a simple thing, we, we all have plenty, right? Or at least most of us do here. And so let's just continue to share and continue to vest. And as we do so, I believe that God's gonna continue to be faithful to bear a lot of fruit uh, through that ministry and many others uh, as we seek to live on mission here in Southeast Iowa and uh, beyond. Now, since we're talking about next Sunday, I also wanna mention that it happens to be Independence Day. Did you realize that? Next Sunday is July 4th. So I know that uh, some of you are gonna be out of town next Sunday, but if you're not out of town, I want to invite you to come and to begin your celebration of your freedom here with your church body. So, so we're gonna celebrate, we do this every Sunday. Uh, we're gonna celebrate the greater freedom that we have in Christ. So let's come and do that together and then we can go out and celebrate the freedom that we have as Americans, all right? So uh, if you're in town, I hope to see you next Sunday. Um, And if you're out of town, you can watch us online at 10 o'clock, all right? So that's next Sunday. But today, we're gonna turn our attention um, to Galatians 4 as we jump into it. Uh, And we're gonna find the Apostle Paul elaborating on the wonderful truth that he introduced at the end of chapter three, our adoption as sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I think you all know that uh, adoption is very near and dear to me as it has brought me one of my greatest treasures, a young man that I first knew uh, as Jahai, but that now goes by the name Zane Christopher Carr. And it was uh, the truths that we're going to see in the first seven verses of Galatians chapter four that motivated Eve and I to begin the adoption process almost 10 years ago now. You see, in Galatians chapter four, Paul's gonna tell us about our adoption and that truth is what what motivated us and inspired us to adopt nearly uh, now nine years ago. This means in a way I've been waiting almost a decade uh, to preach this message to you. And so I hope it's gonna be a blessing to you today. Let me begin by reminding you that in last week's passage, Paul told us that before faith in Christ, we were imprisoned and condemned But after faith in Christ, we're now free sons of God, sons who will inherit all that the Father has promised us. So so we've got to get this because Paul's just going to continue on with this line of thinking in our passage today. Before faith in Christ, we were all imprisoned and condemned, but now after we place our faith in Christ, we are free sons of God who are going to inherit all the promises that our Father has given us. 
So that's the end of chapter three. And now in the beginning of chapter four, Paul's gonna tell us how this happens and what our experience is as a result. In short then, there, there are two big things that we're gonna learn today. One, how we get the status of sonship, how we actually get adopted. And two, how we get the experience of sonship, how we actually live life as a child of God. And let me tell you, it's crucial that we understand both of these things. So pick up with me now in verse one. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We're not gonna spend too much time on these three verses because in them, Paul says almost the exact same thing that he says at the end of chapter three about where we were before faith in Christ. The only significant difference is that instead of saying we were imprisoned and condemned by the law, he says that we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now there's lots of debate about what these elementary principles are, but given what we see in verses eight through 11 where Paul uses the same phrase again, it seems to best understand them as the rituals of legalistic religion. The rituals of legalistic religion. Both the Jews and the Gentiles were legalistic in their religious practices. The Jews, of course, in following the law and the Gentiles in worshiping their pagan deities. And let me be clear, when I say legalistic, I'm referring to an approach where we attempt to earn God's favor by what we do. Legalism is, is an attempt or an approach to, to earn, to merit God's favor, his acceptance through what we do. Now, I just wanna make this point, all right? What Paul is telling us here is that before faith in Christ, we're enslaved to efforts to save ourselves. Of course, if you come from a legalistic background, you have no problem identifying legalism as bondage. In fact, that's the defining characteristic of legalistic religion. Bondage is just what it feels like. However, I would highlight that all of life without Christ is legalistic bondage, whether that legalism is found in an identifiable religion or not. You see, everyone is trying to save themselves. Everyone is looking for salvation, and without Christ... That searching always turns into legalistic pursuit. We always end up with certain things that we have to do in order to be saved or to be in, to, to, to really be accepted and to really be where we want to be. And therefore, whether we are religious or not, so, so you might not be re religious here, but, but if you don't have faith in Christ, you are enslaved to your efforts to save yourself. You're trying to save yourself. And without Christ, you're gonna be in bondage because you can't save yourself. However, note what word verse four starts with. I want you to help me this morning. It's one of the most glorious words of the Bible. What word, say it with me. What word does verse four start with? But. Paul says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. In these verses, Paul tells us how we get the status of sonship, how we actually become children of God, how we go from slaves 
to sons. I've encouraged you several times in our Galatians series to highlight or underline passages, and I'm gonna do so again here with verses four and five. And I'm gonna do so again because these verses are really at the very heart of the gospel. So this series, you remember what this series is entitled? And what we've called this series, you should know because it comes up on the screen every Sunday before I get up to preach, right? You don't pay attention to that, I realize that, all right? The title of the series is No Other Gospel. And here in verses four and five, Paul's going to give the clearest and the fullest explanation of the gospel anywhere in Galatians and and in some ways anywhere in the New Testament, at least this most succinct version of it. So these verses are incredibly rich, and therefore I'm gonna walk through them very carefully with you almost word for word. Paul begins by saying that we get the status of sonship through God the Father sending his son in the fullness of time. There are two things that we need to grab hold of here. One is the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is himself God. This can be seen from the Father, that the fa- from the fact that the Father sent him from heaven, meaning that Jesus existed with the Father in heaven before he was born here on earth. The second thing we need to grab hold of is that the Father sent Jesus at just the right time in history. That's what the fullness of time refers to. It was the time when the Father had providentially prepared all the peoples of the earth, both Jews and Gentiles, for the arrival of Jesus' life and ministry. It was also the time when the Roman Empire had made it possible for the gospel to spread to the ends of the earth. Now, we could have an interesting and in-depth discussion about how these things are true, but for now, suffice it to say that God chose the absolute perfect time to send Jesus. And when Jesus came, Paul says that he was born of a woman. In other words, he was born just like the rest of us. Every one of us came into this world the exact same way, through the body and the labor of a woman. And this, this shows that Jesus is human just like we are. So, so we gotta realize this, that, that Jesus did not teleport from heaven down to that stable in Bethlehem. He wasn't delivered by a stork. He didn't show up like the boss baby, right? Jesus came into this world the exact same way that every one of us do And this is to show, or at least this displays, that he is human just like we are. He is God, yes, but he is also human. He is fully God and he is fully man in one person. I just wanna take a moment here for for us to, to, to recognize how important it is to affirm both of these things. The person of Christ, who Jesus is, is fully God and fully man in one person. You might be saying, well, how in the world does that work? I have no idea. And nobody else does either, except for God himself. It's a mystery that our limited, finite human minds cannot comprehend. However, it is something the Bible very clearly teaches over and over again. And so those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ have come to believe it is true, even if we can't fully understand it. Jesus is fully God, fully man in one person. Now, he's not only born of a woman, Paul says that he's also born under the law, which means when he came into this world, he came in obligated to the law, just like we are. He was required to follow God's law, just like you and me. 
There's a difference, of course, when it comes to Jesus, right? Jesus actually kept the law while none of us do. Jesus was the law keeper while we are all lawbreakers. Now, what's the significance of this? Well, Jesus, in being a law keeper, is then able to pay the penalty for our law breaking and to transfer to us his law keeping. We get his law keeping, he gets our law breaking. Pretty good deal, don't you think? Now, let me quote John Stott here again. The, well, let me say this first. There are three key things then that we need to see about Jesus in verse four. His deity, his humanity, and his perfect obedience. Jesus was fully God, fully man, and fully obedient. And these three things are what enabled him to be the one through whom, as verse five tells us, we are redeemed and adopted as sons. To quote John Stott again, the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualified him to be man's redeemer. If he had not been man, he could not have been redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them the sons of God. However, however, Jesus did redeem us and he did make us sons of God and he did it as the God-man who lived a life of perfect obedience that we do not. Now let's talk about what it means to be redeemed and adopted. Paul says that, that this is Jesus, fully God, fully man, perfectly obedient, and he came to this earth in order to redeem those who are under the law. So who are those who are under the law? All of us are under the law. And Jesus came to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's talk about redemption, and then we'll talk about adoption. We've already learned in this series that the word redeem means to free from the penalty, free from the penalty by the payment of a price. And so here again in verse five, Paul's telling us that Jesus paid the price so that we can be freed from slavery. Let's remind ourselves of what price Jesus paid. Here's what the apostle Peter tells us in his first letter. He says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. What is that empty way of life? It's a, an empty way of life where we are trying to save ourselves through what we do. We've been redeemed from that. And how have you been redeemed or what have we been redeemed with? But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The price that Jesus paid was his blood, his very own life. Jesus gave his life in exchange for ours, and as a result, through faith in him, we're now free from slavery. We're free from needing to work for our salvation. So can I proclaim to you the wonderful truth that if you are in Jesus Christ, you do not any longer have to try to save yourself. You're free. You have, you have been freed, and you have been freed forever. There's no list of rules that you need to follow. There is no law that you are obligated to, to keep. There's no religious rituals and practices that you need to do. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, then Jesus has redeemed you and he has set you free from any burden that you might ever feel to save yourself, to make yourself right, to be accepted by God. What, what a wonderful truth this is. Isn't it wonderful to be free? So, so next week again, 
we're gonna celebrate our freedom as Americans. And, and God, God's given us that freedom too, and we should celebrate it. We should be thankful for it. But my friends, there is a much greater freedom that you and I have as children of God, and that's the fact that we have been freed into a relationship with him, into adoption. We'll talk about that in a minute. So go ahead and let's, let's celebrate our freedom next Sunday. But the freedom that we should really celebrate every day of the year is the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, let's then talk about adoption because as great as redemption is, there's something even better. And that's adoption. God sent Jesus not just so that we can be free, but so that we can also be his children. So, so God doesn't just free us and say, hey, be free, live free and prosper. No, he, he redeems us so that he can then welcome us into his family, so he can make us his children. Look at verse five again. It says, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God frees us, he redeems us so that we might be his son, so we can go from slavery to sonship. Now let's talk about what sonship entails. The phrase adoption as sons here in verse five is literally the full rights of sons. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the full rights of sons. Now, to understand what this means, we have to go back to the first century Greco-Roman world where a wealthy man who was childless would sometimes take one of his slaves and adopt him. So, so a really wealthy man didn't have any children. He didn't have any heirs. Sometimes he would take one of his household slaves and he would adopt him as a son. And when he adopted him as a son, that adoptee would instantaneously go from having the status of a slave to going to having the status of a son. Along with that went all of the financial and the legal things that go into being the son of a wealthy man. So this man, this adoptee, was instantaneously given, granted all the rights, the full rights, as if he had been a natural born son. In a moment, he left a life of slavery and entered a life of privilege, one in which he became an heir to all the wealth of his father. So, so imagine this. Imagine you are, you are living in first century Rome, and you are a slave. And there were lots of slaves in first century Rome, so it would be very possible if you lived during that time, you would be a slave. And if you were a slave, you, you really had no life. You, you, your life was completely dedicated to doing whatever your master wanted you to do. You really had no present, you had no future, you had no belongings at all. So imagine that you're in that situation, and then one day, your master says, you know what, I've decided to adopt you. I've decided to make you my son. When he decided to do that, and when that became official legally, you would instantly go from having to, to serve your master to being a dearly loved son with all of the privileges, all of the wealth, and all the inheritance that that man had. So what Paul is telling us here, when, when God adopts us, he gives us the full rights of sons, he's telling us that the moment we place our faith in Christ, we're freed from slavery and God adopts us into his family so that we receive the full rights of a son of God. We instantaneously enter a life of privilege and become an heir to all the wealth of our father who is God himself. Note how Paul explains this in verse seven when he says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
And if a son, then an heir through God. So, so the point here is that when God adopts us, we get all the rights of a son of God. All of the rights are ours. All of the things that it means to be a son of God are now true of us. When I reflect on this, on the wonder of this, I can't help but respond as the apostle John does in 1 John 3 when he writes this. See, that word means behold or look at. Look at what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ today, you need to look. You need to behold. You need to see the amazing love that God has poured out on you to take you from slavery to sonship so that you, you might know today. Here's the great, you know what the greatest privilege in the world is? The greatest privilege in the world is to be able to say, I am a son of God. There is no greater privilege than that. And we should look and we should see that that only takes place because God, God loves us because we don't deserve it, right? Do any of us deserve to be sons of God? No, we deserve to remain in bondage. We deserve to remain condemned. We deserve to remain in prison. But in his great love for us, God sent his son to come and die, his only son, his perfect son, to die in our place. So through faith in him, we might be adopted and we might be called sons of God. So that's how we get the status of sonship. Let's now talk about how we get the experience of sonship. Look at verse six. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The first thing I want to point out here is that there are two sendings in our text today. In verse four, Paul says that God sent Jesus. And now here in verse six, he says that God sent the spirit. And here's how it works. God sent Jesus so that we might have the status of sonship. And then once we have the status of sonship, God sends the spirit so that we might have the experience of sonship. Everybody got that? It starts with God sending his son. Jesus came to earth. And he came to earth so that we might have the status of sonship. And then once we have the status of sonship, God sends his spirit into our hearts so that we might have the experience of sonship. Now, when the Bible says hearts in places like this, it's not referring to our physical organ, like Jesus actually resides in this thing that's beating in my chest. Hearts here represents our being, our life, the very center of who we are. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if, if through faith in him you become a child of God, you have the spirit residing in your life at this very moment. We actually learned this earlier um, in chapter three, where Paul tells us that the Spirit's presence in our life is the mark of a Christian. The defining mark of a Christian, what, what makes you a Christian, what makes you a son of God, is the presence of the Spirit in your life. Paul goes further here, though, in verse six, and tells us that the Holy Spirit not only signifies we're a child of God, but he's also the one through whom we experience what it means to live life as a child of God. So Holy Spirit marks us as a child of God, but he also is the one through whom we experience and we live out life as a child of God. Paul says that it's through the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. The word cry here means to call out or to shout. However, the word doesn't have to do with volume, but rather it has to do with intensity. It points to 
an interaction of great emotion and passion. And the one that we cry out to is our Abba, which is an Aramaic word for daddy or papa. It's a term of respect and endearment. So when Paul says here, it's through the Holy Spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father, what we probably should, should picture, maybe the best illustration of this, is a young child who, who sees their father uh, off in the distance, or maybe they see uh, him come through the door after work, and they, they, they run to him with their arms spread out, crying, Daddy, 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 and they jump into his arms, and they snuggle up to his neck, and there's great affection and passion and emotion from the child to the father, And she's able to do that because she knows that the father has that great affection for her. What Paul's telling us then here is that through the Holy Spirit, we experience a deep personal relationship with God, a relationship in which we feel safe, secure, confident, and welcome, a relationship where we feel a deep love and affection for him and him for us. A relationship where we're comfortable crying out to him with our each and every need. Now, with that said, here's what I know. I know many of us don't relate to God in this way. We don't think or relate to him in terms of endearment as our daddy or as our papa. We don't experience a relationship with him where we feel safe, secure, confident, and welcome. We don't feel a deep love and affection for him and more significantly, him for us. And because this is the case, we rarely, if ever, engage with him and make our needs known to him. So so most of us believe that we have the status of sonship. We believe that we're children of God. If I were to go up to, to almost all of you after the service and ask you if you were a child of God, you would say, absolutely, yes, I know that I'm a child of God. However, if the conversation was to go deeper, and, and I was to begin to ask you if you experience the life of a child of God, if you actually have a relationship with God of affection and endearment and tenderness, and, and you see him not just as your heavenly father, but as your daddy or as your papa, you would say, no, not so much. Now, I've been doing this for a long time at this point, and I know that this is true. I know I'm speaking to a whole lot of people here uh, today who, yes, you would say I'm a child of God, but in reality, that life of a child of God, what Paul, because note that Paul says here, he says, we cry out, Abba, Father. So for most of us, it's more like that's what it should be than that's what it really is. Here's what I want you to know today. Now, there are lots of reasons for this, right? There are lots of reasons. It could be because of uh, the religious upbringing or the background that we come from. It could be because of a difficult relationship with the earthly father. It could be because of a traumatic event or a series of traumatic events in our lives. For some of us, all of those things are true, right? We've had all of those things in our life. And and listen, a fatherhood in our world, we all know it it just completely messed up, right? And, And the result of that is that there are so many of us who have a really difficult time in having a deep relationship of love and affection a deep personal relationship with our Heavenly Father. And I just want you to know, if this is the case for you, I completely get it. I completely understand where you are at. This is something, in fact, that I have struggled with nearly the entirety of my Christian life, and it's something that the Holy Spirit is working on me right now. Now, I think that that you probably know that I am much more of a a head guy than a heart guy, right? (laughs) 
Don't laugh too much, Char. Okay. <laughs> so it's uh, relatively easy, and I get really excited about preaching the truths of the gospel to you like I have done this morning. I love, love, love those truths. But then when it gets to this heart issue of really feeling, experiencing, knowing the Lord in the way that Paul is describing here for me, that's not so easy for me. It's a struggle. It's really, really difficult. And so if that's the way it is for you, just understand, I know that's where you're coming from. So here's what I want to do. In the rest of the message, I want to help you to know how you can begin to experience your sonship in a greater way. If you're a child of God, you have the sonship. How do we actually experience it? Now, some of you might be saying, I don't know that I really want to experience it. So, so let me say this to you. This is what you were created for. You were created for a deep, intimate personal relationship with your heavenly father. And the reason that you struggle with it or the reason that you may even resist it is because of one thing and that is sin. It's not necessarily even all your sin. It's probably the sin of a lot of other people as well. But the reality is, is that we all struggle with it. So, so how do we begin to experience? And let me tell you, uh, if you could just get a taste of it, 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 it's wonder. It's really what we're longing for. It's really what we want. And when we get there and begin to experience it, it is completely life transforming. So let me share with you two things, two ways you can begin to experience your sonship in a greater way. First, you can have a greater experience of sonship by realizing you can come to God just like Jesus did. You can come to God just like Jesus did. There's actually only one place in the Bible where we see someone actually addressing God the Father as Abba Father. Only one place where we actually see someone crying out Abba Father. Can you think of where that is? Can you think of who that is? One place. It's Garden of Gethsemane. It's where Jesus, the night before he's going to be crucified, cries out, Abba, Father, in his prayer. Now, here's what's interesting. The Galatians did not speak Aramaic. Remember, the word Abba is Aramaic. They did not speak Aramaic. So, so when Paul's writing this letter, he's using a word that the Galatians would not have understood. If you think about it, the common sense is like, why in the world would you do that? Well, here's why he would do it. He would do it because he wanted the Galatians and he wanted us to realize that we can pray to God the Father just the way that Jesus did. In other words, we can come to him confidently and boldly. We can come before him as if we are perfectly sinless, as if we are faithful, as if we are courageous, as if we have nothing standing between us and our Father. How can we come to him in this way? Well, we can come in him in this way because we don't come before our Father based upon what we have done, are doing, or will do. We come to the Father based upon what Jesus did. So, so here's what I'm trying to tell you. The way to, to experience your sonship in a greater way is to begin to see yourself the way that God the Father sees you. And the way that God the Father sees you is not on your record of your life. And it's not on the record of what you are going to be in the future. The way that God the Father sees you is he sees you as Jesus he sees Jesus' perfect life as your life. And so now you can come before him 
confidently, boldly, knowing that he wants, did you realize this is the first, listen, God always welcomes you to him. God always welcomes you to him. And he desperately wants you to come to him with your struggles, with your pain, with your hurt, with your anger, with your frustration, with your questions, with your sin. Listen, there, there, I just will tell you this. There is nothing that anyone in this room as a child of God is doing right now or has done in the past, whether it's an action, an attitude, something that you have said that should keep you from coming before your heavenly father. His arms are wide open to you and he beckons you to come to him and to have a deep personal relationship. He even, listen, those struggles and those sins that you've got going on in your world, he already knows about them. And he just wants you to come and to talk to him about him, to confess them, and to ask for his help in changing and transforming. So, so listen, there is nothing about you that you have done or about your person that should keep you from coming before the Father. Because when you come before the Father, he doesn't see any of that stuff. It's gone. It's done. It's been erased as far as he is concerned. And you come to him solely on the basis of Jesus' perfect life so that you can cry out to him. Listen, when, when Jesus came before the Father of the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, Abba, Father, it, it, that, that is a, an incredibly, certainly respectful term, but it's a term of endearment. It's a term of, of, of closeness. It's a term of intimacy. And here Paul is telling us that through the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can and really we should come to the Father in the exact same way. Second, you can have a greater experience of sonship by realizing that God loves you just like he loves Jesus. God loves you just like he loves Jesus. This is closely related to what I just shared, but because it's so important to understand how much God loves us, I wanna stress it a little more. In his prayer in John 17, so this is also in the Garden of Gethsemane, Here's what Jesus asked the Father. He asked his, follower to make, uh, his Father to make his followers perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me, and get this, and love them as you loved me. Let me ask you, how much do you think God the Father loves God the Son? Like a lot? Or a little? It's a lot, right? It's like infinitely. Here's what I want you to know today. That's how much God the Father loves you. I didn't say it. He said it. Jesus said it. He said, I want the world to know that you have loved them. It's present tense, really. It looks a little past tense, but it's present tense. Love them as you have loved me. God loves you just like he loves Jesus. Now, how do you know that God loves you that much? Let me tell you how you know that God loves you that much. You know it because he sent Jesus to die in your place. I know that you, you all know this, especially because I just walked through it with you a few minutes ago, but I really believe that we so often fail to appropriate this truth. God was willing to pay the highest price to make you his child. Did you hear that, believer? God was willing to pay the highest price so that you could be his child. In order to adopt you, he sent his only son. He sent him to die. And he sent him to die for you. And he didn't do it grudgingly. 
He didn't do it because he felt obligated. He did it because he loves you and wants you to know him as your daddy, as your papa, as your father who always welcomes and accepts you and wants you to come to him with whatever, whenever you have a need, with whatever problems and concerns that you have. I wanna close with this. I've learned a lot about adoption over the last 10 years. And something that stands out is that when you're in the process of adopting um, and you have other children, uh, you, you really wrestle with and you really question whether you are going to love your adopted child as much as you love your biological children. And this even happens, you know, with biological children, right? After you have the first child and then the second one is on the way, you're wondering like, is it possible that I could love this second one as much as I love the first one? And you know what the answer is? The answer is yes. Because somehow magically, once that second child is born, you just have the the same intensity of love for that child, the second child, as you did for the first, and the third, and the fourth, and in the Sintumiangs, all the way to the ninth, right? Okay? (laughs) But it's it's true, right? We know that this this is true. Amazingly, this is also what happens with adopted children. Or at least it's what has happened for me. I love this little guy as much as I love his brothers and sisters. And I had that love for him for the first day I met him. And in some ways, I have a unique love for him. It's not a better or a greater love, but it's a unique love. And it's a unique love because I chose him. The other one just kind of magically appeared at my house one day. (laughs) You know, I I came home from work and there they were. (laughs) There's a lot more to it than that. At least Eva will tell you what there is. Uh, (laughs) But I chose him. I chose to go on a very costly trip to a foreign land to bring him home and make him my son. Brothers and sisters, that's what God's done for you. He chose you. Ephesians tells us that he chose you before the foundation of the world, before he made anything. He decided that he was gonna send his son. Think about this, this is mind-blowing. God knew that Adam and Eve were gonna sin. And knowing that enemy, we're going to sin. He decided before they even sinned that he was going to sacrifice his own son to make you his child. And so Jesus came on a very long and a very costly journey to a foreign land. And he did it to bring you home and make you God's son or daughter. And so in closing, what I want to tell you is if you want to have a greater experience, and you do, If you want to have a greater experience of your sonship, then you have to take these two truths I've closed with and you have to meditate on them and you have to pray over them. You have to go back to them constantly over and over that you can come to God just like Jesus did, especially when you screw up. And that you can do that because God loves you like he loves Jesus. Take these truths, meditate on them and then do this, okay? You have the Holy Spirit living in your life. We need to talk a lot more about the Holy Spirit. We're going to do that in the coming weeks. You have the Holy Spirit. Take those truths and ask the Holy Spirit to make them real for you 
so that you will be drawn into a deeper relationship with your heavenly father. I don't know if you realize this or not, but you can pray to the Holy Spirit. You know, we, we pray to the Father, right? And sometimes we pray to Jesus. How often do we pray to the Holy Spirit? What we need to recognize is we actually see the teaching, of the doctrine of the Trinity in this passage. We actually see it in verse six. All three of them there. And the Holy Spirit is just as much God as God the Father and God the Son. And so you can rightly and you should pray to him and praise him, but you should also ask him to take the truths of your sonship and make them the experience of your life.